0: Welcome back to America's Talking. Today, I am so excited for Chad Hauser to join me in conversation. After 17 years as a chef, Chad sold his partnership at Parigi Restaurant in Dallas, Texas, to devote his full attention to running Cafe Momentum, which is an incredible organization that we will be talking with him about today. Chad, thank you for joining.
1: Honored to be here. Thank you for having me, Austin.
0: So don't take this the wrong way, but I often think of chefs as... Uh, the drummers of the service industry they seem they're all crazy all the ones that i know they drink a lot uh they yell at people they're kind of you know to the beat of their own drum literally um and you have such an interesting story about how you got into the industry and then how that goes into cafe momentum could you tell us a little bit about how your passion for cooking developed, and your passion in restaurants, and then how you've directed that uh, into your work at Cafe Momentum.
1: Yeah, well, it's definitely a, a non-linear uh, <laughs> path. Um, you know, I've always enjoyed cooking, and my love for cooking came from um, going with my mom and dad to my grandparents' house um, every. Um, every Sunday for Sunday supper with all my aunts and uncles and cousins. And so food for me was much more than, than just eating. It was about um, family. It was about that camaraderie. Um, and uh, fast forward to going to college and um, you know, I did my first two years, got all the basics out of the way. Uh, those rascally colleges expect you to declare a major at that point. And I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I really loved cooking and I loved um, the idea of the the creativity behind cooking and, and that that purpose and meaning from the Sunday suppers. Uh, but I didn't think that that was necessarily a career path because I grew up always being told you have to go to college, get a degree, um, which to me meant um, a quote unquote serious job. Um, and so uh, I told my parents that I was gonna um, declare a major in English literature, and um, but, but once I got my degree, I was gonna go ahead and um, try cooking. So I could try something that I liked, but I had a degree, so I had fulfilled my, my educational obligation to my parents. Um, and uh, my dad said, um, well, if you love cooking so much, why don't you just go to culinary school? which was his way of saying, if you get an English literature degree, you're going to spend the rest of your life sleeping on my couch and I don't want you here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I went to culinary school and, and, you know, had one goal in mind, which was to own my own restaurant and, and be the chef of that restaurant. And, uh, Louis where Louis did
0: Louisville. that come from? Did you, that was just, that popped into your head? Cause that's a big, that's a big thing between like, I love my family and having Sunday dinner to, Oh, I'm going to own a restaurant where like, <laughs> where did that even come from? <laughs> You
1: know, um, that's probably its own episode. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I I think it was just the drive. Like I didn't want to, um, just be a cook. I wanted to be the best. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a, a pretty competitive person, especially with myself. And it was like, why would I go into something if I, if it was just to get by you know so for me the the ambition was to be a chef and own a restaurant and i knew at a younger age even um and certainly once you get in the industry like um being a chef is to me probably the equivalent of like being a, a professional athlete and that as, as you get older and you're beating up your body uh non in a kitchen like your body can only take so much so Um, you have to look at like, what's going to happen when I can't, you know, my knees and my back hurt too much to cook anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. so the idea of owning a restaurant was, uh, in part like for career longevity, but also just, you know, as an owner, you have the autonomy to do what you want. Um, and so that was, you know, that was really appealing to me. So it was just, you know, very quickly, I want to be a chef. I want to own my own restaurant. I want to, in my mind that meant success.
0: Got it. And so you go to culinary school with this goal and you achieve it. you have a yeah. very successful yeah. restaurant and then yeah. where how do we get to this whole nonprofit world and we should talk about all the work that cafe momentum is doing?
1: Well, I, I'd be remiss if I mentioned that um, in 2007 I sold my house took all the equity out of it and took out a loan and, and uh, bought into the incredibly stable investment that is a restaurant um, amidst a giant recession. Um, but in spite of the recession, I had grown the business by, uh, almost 40% in my first year of ownership and had been nominated, uh, by a prominent local publication here in Dallas as best up and coming chef. And so, um, for me, there's like that, Hey, I, I did it. You know, mm-hmm. I I've hit, I've hit everything now. Now the next challenge is let's open more restaurants and let's just keep, you know, keep building an empire. But it was right at the one-year mark of ownership that I I was voluntold that I was going to teach eight young men in a juvenile detention facility how to make ice cream for an ice cream competition um, at the Dallas Farmers Market. And um, the moment I met those eight young men, I I felt the greatest sense of shame um, I've ever experienced because the moment I met them, I realized that I had stereotyped them before I ever met them. And uh, not only was I wrong, but I thought I was a better human being than that. Um, But when confronted with the reality, quite literally face to face, I wasn't. And so um, I, that, that led to a, a tremendous sense of humility. I was very humbled, and, and that, that humility led me to spend the next several hours teaching them to make ice cream, but more importantly, listening. And I listened to these eight young men um, you know, tell me exactly who they were and how they were and, and why they were. And then two days later, they're, they're at the farmer's market competing against college culinary students. One of the young men wins the whole thing. Um, and, and beating out the college students. And he's so excited. And, um, he told me, I just love making food and giving it, uh, to people and putting a smile on their face. And, um, you know, for me that thought that's the most beautiful way I've ever heard anyone express their heart. Um, but, but it's also like that goes back to the Sunday suppers at my grandparents' house, you know, of, of what the, what the true meaning of breaking bread means.
0: Um, what was the winning ice cream flavor? I have to ask. Did, yeah. Do you um,
1: well, yeah. So I, um, these young men had never tasted a lot of the fruits that we brought. I mean, even like fresh pineapple or mango. And so I quickly um, came up with a rule that they had to use at least two fruits and at least one herb in their ice cream, because I thought that'll get them tasting things. Yeah. So one, uh, his flavor was cantaloupe, strawberry and basil. And uh, And it was delicious. Delicious. Um. So he told me that when he got released, he was going to get a job in a restaurant and asked me my professional uh, award nominated chef opinion on whether he should work at Wendy's or Chili's. Um, And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, whoever hires you first. I'm so excited. He's so excited. He gets in a van and goes back to jail. I get my truck and drive home. Uh, and reality set in for me. And the reality was he was never gonna make it to a Wendy's or Chili's. Um, Just thinking of his story that he had shared with me and going back to the same house, the same street, the same neighborhood, the same schools, the same food desert, all of those things that had pushed him in a path to detention, they don't change. Um, And as I got a little more um, introspective and reflective and started thinking about um, me at 16 and him, very quickly, come to the realization that um, both of our lives were dictated by choices that were made for us before we were born, because of the color of our skin, or the socioeconomic class we were born in, the part of town, um, all these things that seemingly matter that um, we didn't have um, uh, agency or autonomy over. You know, um, and then they shouldn't, but they do. And and I just thought, if you know, if that's the way the world really works, I, I don't want to live in that world. And so. From then, I went and volunteered more with the juvenile department, continued to listen, um, and through two words that the staff used, uh, consistency and stability, and listening to young people tell stories looking for consistency and stability, that's where the initial, you know, concept of Cafe Momentum came about.
0: And so you have this idea in your head of, I really want to help young men and women like this. It's not fair that they've ended up in this station in life because, but for the grace of God, there go I. I may be, I might be butchering that. I'm close enough, right, Chad? That's, it's close. It's something like that. Um, so you have this realization that's really powerful. And I assume you go back to the restaurant and you have a few days of just kind of like going through the motions at the restaurant and it just feels kind of forced and weird, like you're playing a part or something. And this is in the back of your head. How does the idea of Cafe Momentum come about? And then where do you start? What's the first thing you're doing?
1: So, um, you know, it really took about a year for me to even think of the idea. Of went home. I continued to volunteer in the juvenile department. I continued to work with the youth and listen, um, listen to the staff, um, but never really completely comprehending what that meant for me. Like, what's that? What's where's my path in that or my purpose in that? Um, in, in full disclosure, I was uh, closing the restaurant down one night and uh, i was on the phone with my business partner and uh, i was drinking bourbon and and she was at home drinking red wine um and i was complaining to her that it had been a year and i had done nothing and that i felt like i was just another person that talked the talk but didn't walk the walk for these young people um and kind of in a moment of like stop whining she just says then what are you going to do and kind of in a moment of I had a little bit of bourbon. <laughs> I said, "Well, I just want to open up a restaurant and let the kids run it." And her response was, "That's kind of a great idea." Um, and so, literally, we just sat there on the phone talking back and forth um, as to what that could kind of look like. And then um, went to the gentleman that that um, that that had introduced me to the to the young people in the first place. Told him what I wanted to do, and and he said, "Let's do it." Um, and that, that just started the ball of motion, um, began having regular meetings with people, build out, people think it's a great idea. Then you start asking for money. Um, and then, uh, a lot of truths come
0: out. Um, and so, um, yeah, what was, were those conversations like? Cause no, cause I assume this has become more common. I feel like this model of you have, uh, using restaurants as a job training tool of some sort but you were really taking your specific niche um was specifically formerly incarcerated youth if from the beginning right what were yes. what were those con- what were those conversations like
1: um i was asked what um what i planned to do when the kids stabbed each other in the kitchen uh i was told and i quote directly repeatedly directly uh those kids don't want to work those kids just want to collect a check uh, I was told repeatedly, uh, those kids have never been to a nice restaurant. They can't cook your food. Um, and you get to this position of like, thinking my God, this is this is what these children hear every day. The society tells them every day who they are and this is who they're telling them they are. So like, it's no wonder that they've committed um, a, a criminal act as a means of survival. In, in, because the world's told them that that's what that's their purpose. Um, And I just thought they're never going to they're never going to have an equitable opportunity in life if the world just keeps telling them that. And so for me, it was like, how do you bridge that? How do you create um, a situation in which um, you break that stereotype? And I just thought, like, for me, it was proximity. It was, you know, I met the kids. And so if you meet the kids, you're never going to say that about them. And so that's where I. Uh, came up with the idea to do these monthly pop-up dinners. And the idea was very simple, go in one of the top restaurants in Dallas on a Sunday night when they're closed, sell tickets to a private dinner there where the chef writes a four-course menu. And then the staff, um, to not, not only helping the chef in the kitchen, but 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 serving the, the food to the level and quality of service of that restaurant were eight uh, young men that we would bus in from a, a juvenile detention facility. Our first dinner was June, 2011. Um, I was convinced that nobody was going to show up. Um, my business partner and three other people were were helping as part of this team collective to to organize and and push this. None of us thought anybody would show up. Um, our goal was to get fifty people to show up. I was going to have my call my mom and have her guilt the ladies in her Bible study class into buying tickets because I thought, well, at least then somebody will show up. Um, They're great but, at uh, showing
0: up the stuff. The Bible study people,
1: <laughs> yeah. one of their superpowers. Yeah, older ladies in Bible study, you know that's a, especially down the south, that's a big deal. Um, But they, um, myself and another gentleman, posted a link on our personal Facebook pages to a a PayPal with a little write up about the dinner, and within 24 hours before we could turn the PayPal off, we had oversold the dinner. Um, And that first night, not only did the kids receive a, a resounding standing ovation at the end of the evening, but. Uh, every person walked out that door and looked at me and said, you know, this could be my son. Um, and it was like, that's it, you know, stereotypes Mm over. Um, we subsequently went on to do 41 of those over three and a half years, raising money and awareness, um, building conversation and breaking stereotypes. Um, and about a year into them as when I sat down with my business partner and said, um, I got to walk the talk. You know, it's one thing to tell the kids that you believe in them. It's something very different. And then, like you mentioned, sold, sold my ownership back to her, to her and, and focused my full attention on Cafe Momentum. And then uh, finally in January, January 29th, 2015, we opened the
0: doors to the public for the first time. And since then, how many children have been through the program? Um, and what, and I know you're planning expansion, but what, what are the numbers on how many children have been served and what their outcomes have been?
1: Yep. Um, so we've served over a thousand um, we used to do. Um, well, I'm going to tell you about some of the, the the numbers pertaining to to their lives coming into the program first. Um, so for over a thousand young people, 42 percent um, are homeless um, and, and we're dealing with 15 to 19 year olds. And in a lot of cases for them, homeless um, that means you also don't have any type of adult or guardian support. Um, so you're on your own to, you're fending for yourself as to where you're going to sleep at night, find food, um, to eat medicine, et cetera. Um, 54%, um, come to us as high school dropouts. Um, uh, and I would easily argue that that 45 of the other 46% are just completely disengaged uh, with education in general, um, for one, um, they're not welcome back to their their home uh, school in their neighborhood. Uh, number two is they may not have a neighborhood because they're homeless, and they don't want to go to school because they can't put down an address for residency, and they're afraid the school put them into CPS, and then they enter the system. Um, and the third thing is a lot of them feel like schools, you know, the first place that that ever made them feel bad or dumb, uh, and they have no desire to go back. And and so um, and. The, uh, of the over a thousand that we've worked with a hundred percent of them have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. Um, and, and I always think it's important to point out that an adverse childhood experience is a, is a clinical definition for a severe trauma. Um, are we're talking witnessing murder of a loved one. We're talking being raped or molested. Um, we're, there's a, this is not a like, Oh gosh. Um, you know, I had to walk to school instead of take the bus or something, you know, it's this, these are, these are real severe issues that they've experienced in, in, in a young life. And, and, and when I say that a hundred percent have experienced at least one, I think on average, it's, um, if you, if they took a quiz of, of 10 adverse childhood experiences, um, they would answer yes to seven of them. Um, hmm. so, um, we're dealing with it with a, a population of young people that have had to, um, experience a lot of um, severe difficulty and marginalization uh, in a very young life. Um, We used to study recidivism a lot um, in our numbers um, indicate that we've made a tremendous impact, you know, the state average hovers and really for any state, just about for juvenile recidivism hovers around 50%. Um, and at our last count was 15.2%. So I used to give our mayor grief that he owes me over $50 million for money that we've saved taxpayers. But, um, as part of our model, as we continue to evolve and grow and, and, uh, work with more youth and see them going on to success. One of the things that we've made a conscious decision to do is not focus on recidivism anymore because we don't want our young people, um, to feel like they're coming into an organization that, um, prioritizes keeping them out of jail. Um, when our mission statement says to help them achieve their full potential. So we look at things like, um, as I mentioned with, with the adverse child experiences, also 77% of our youth, um, are voluntarily receiving, uh, mental health uh trauma care um uh as i mentioned the homelessness we don't have we don't have a homeless population once they come in the program um they're all getting government issued ids they're all getting uh bank accounts um and you know uh i guess three years ago now we launched our own high school uh in response to having difficulties getting our kids um, to, to buy into going to school. Um, and as a result, um, we no longer have a dropout rate. 100% of our young people are now in school on track to graduate or have already graduated and nearly a third are entering college.
0: That's in- incredible. So I, I wanna talk about, I, I, I've worked in criminal justice reform for five or six years in different capacities, a lot on the re-entry side. And there are many things. The ID is one that you just brought up, right? Like people don't seem, don't, it's hard for people who haven't had exposure to that system to understand the silliness of that. In Illinois, where I am just right now, there was just a law passed recently that guarantees a state status ID upon release of prison. And I cannot tell you how many people who have been in the system who get out and they say, I mean, they better know who I am. Like, it's so hard for me to get an ID. They know who I am. I've been in here for, for years. You, I think at the very least, they could give me something that says who I am because all of the services that you need to access and, and there's so many things in life that you don't think of that are dependent on this ID. But I'm curious from your perspective, what are those other things that we can do or be more aware of uh, for people who have been incarcerated or interacted with the justice system in some way that are just kind of blind spots uh, for a lot of us?
1: Well, I, I think, like, um, you know, just starting at a, a basic level, um, yeah, I think the data is something like, you know, specific to adults, it's something like 98, 99% of people that go to prison are getting released. Um, so I think we as a society have to ask ourselves a very, very, very simple question Who do we want, How do we want them to be released? Who do we want to be released? You know, um, and, and that starts in incarceration. Are we providing them with the, the type of supports uh, and ecosystem they need inside a prison that translates to outside of prison? So something like a government issued ID. I'll never forget a, a friend of mine uh, that runs a really wonderful organization here in Dallas working with adults, um, had a guy approach him one day and said, I need help. And he said, what's the issue? He said, I can't get a, an ID um he said i can't get a job and friend darren said well you know we can get a job let's get an id he goes but i can't get an id and he said what do you mean he said well um he went to the government building to get an id and they told him that he had um excessive um fines for failure to appear in court while he was in prison <laughs> um they were finding him and charging him with failure to appear citations while he was in prison, which meant that he was not allowed to get a government issued ID until he had paid off all of his fines and fees. And when he told the person in the office, but I can't pay off my fines and fees until I have a job to be able to get that. And I can't get a job until I have an ID. The person just shrugged their shoulders and said, that's the rules. And it's, the, it's it, a
0: Kafkaesque scenario that, that it seems like <laughs> it's, you're just. Constantly struck with the system that is so complex that no one seems to understand how it works the left hands Not talking to the right hand. It's just a vortex of Sort of bureaucracy that is uncaring and all of the figures in it kind of just throw up their hands and they're like, yes yeah, Sorry, i was just doing my job. I didn't design this but y- you mentioned um, uh, Work like this guy really needed to get a job in order for all of these other dominoes to fall into place And I feel like a lot of what your work the power of what your work has done the fact that all of these Uh, youth are still in school, Um, the fact that they're investing time in themselves, getting um, counseling or, you know, thinking about those things. Uh, A lot of it has to do with dignity and the fact that you treat the youth that you um, interact with with dignity and respect. And I'm wondering what you think about the power of dignity in work as it relates to work and what the role of that is in, in what you're doing.
1: Well, I think it's um, I think it's tremendous. I mean, I think you know it it um, it exceeds the the it exceeds even just the job. Um, you know, our young people come in, and honestly, um, they're they're in here because their probation officer said, "Hey, you should try this program. They'll pay you," um, and they're like, "Oh, I'll get money." Um, but there's something significant that happens when they get their first paycheck. There's something significant that happens the first time they build the confidence to look a customer in the eye and talk to them and have that person looking them back in the eye and the respect that they feel. Um, there's something special about the sense of accomplishment you get. I'll never forget. Um, we had quite literally one of the top two or three chefs in Dallas in our kitchen one night and he was pan searing scallops. It was a charity dinner. And, uh, one of our young men walked right up to him and goes, Hey, do you want me to show you how to do those scallops? <laughs> and it was just like, he was so proud though, you know, like yeah. so proud. And it does extend um, beyond the restaurant because they can carry that with them. It extends in the classroom because I have a confidence that I can get it done. It keeps translating. And, you know, I'm, um, this is a incredibly humble brag, but I was on the Steve Harvey show one time and Ooh, he, love it. he, he said it real succinctly of, you know, small victories lead to large, large, large accomplishments. And, um, I, I feel like that's what, um, our young people are experiencing, um, in our program is whether it's in the restaurant, whether it's in the school, whether it's getting their government ID, which, you know, not to, I don't want to, uh, undervalue that either because that's a, it's the first time they've ever had something with their face name and face on it that says, this is who I am. And, and it's special to them. You know, um, all of those little small victories really, truly lead up to this. Um, you know, I, I think that's why you look at things like why so many of them are actually going to college, because there's a there's this sense of I can. Um,
0: right. That's and, amazing. And awful.
1: But yeah, I mean, through employment, you get it. I mean, you get paid, you get a job well done. You, all of these things that happen that um, build your self self-esteem, self-worth, self-value. Um, they're really powerful and they translate across all aspects of your life.
0: That's amazing. So I'm curious as someone who was really successful in the private sector and then sort of you, you went into this nonprofit world and I find there's, there's a really large difference between founders of nonprofits who have founded successful businesses uh, and those who came up in sort of, they knew when they were 18, like, Hey, I'm going to go into, I'm going to be a social worker or I'm going to be, I'm going to work at a nonprofit or those sorts of things. I'm curious what you've noticed about, uh, whether it's your constant, your, your, uh, innovating and improving at a more rapid rate. You're more honest about what your successes and failures are. Like, what do you think your business background, how do you think that that's helped you, um, in your current nonprofit space or where do you see people falling short?
1: Well, um I, I will I, I will first um uh, qualify my response by saying when I told people I was opening a nonprofit restaurant working with um, uh, juvenile justice involved youth, uh, the first response was aren't all restaurants nonprofits? So there is <laughs> there is that <laughs> of it. Um and my response was like, well, yeah, but at least you know I'm honest uh, and have experience. Um uh-huh. I I think um there's a um a balance that an entrepreneurial mind plays um in um looking holistically at an issue or a, a business or uh you know for me our, our business we have a restaurant but our business are young people right there there are there are number one customer um you could argue that in our business um our biggest um Competitor isn't other restaurants or even other programs. It's other things that are happening in their neighborhoods that are pulling them back away from Mm. us. Mm. Um, And so I I think, from kind of a whole, like a, you know, holistic standpoint, when you go into it with a business mindset, you're looking at all of those determinants and factors um, and look at it as I'm going to get into the root as opposed to I just want to feel good. Um, And I think that's kind of where I've always been um, disillusioned with with philanthropy is that, of course, it feels that's great. It's great. It feels good. Um, You know, but um, I don't I don't want to I'm in this business because I want I don't want to be in this business because I want it to end. I want I want our model to effectively become the new model for juvenile justice in this country and put us out of business because. Um, that's our ultimate goal. And I think that that's a lot of, when you look at successful for-profit business, what's the number one thing that a, a successful person does is I want to work myself out of a job. I want to build something so that I'm no longer necessary, uh, or no longer needed. And, and, and I, I feel like that's the mentality that, that I bring, um, uh, to the position is, is to do that. I don't have, um. an agenda that i don't you know uh, i don't i want to know these young people for the rest of my life i don't want to work with them for the rest of my life i want i want that to be done
0: i think that your your assessment of the competitive landscape as not the other nonprofit or the other restaurant but it's everything vying for someone's attention is so key and every successful marketer especially understands you're not vying you're not competing with other products. You're not necessarily competing with other nonprofits if you're doing some kind of marketing campaign. You're competing with everything vying for the end user's attention. You're competing with every hot girl on Instagram that people are looking at. You're competing with every sports team. You're competing with every album ever created. That's your competition for, for attention. So I think that's, that's a totally different mindset than many people it, in philanthropy tend to have.
1: It is, and I'd also add that from a business standpoint, um, businesses look at competition as good and healthy. Right. Um, and I always say like, you know, Coke and Pepsi are competitors, but they push one another successfully all the time. I mean, Coke is is grateful. There's Pepsi and vice versa because people Mm -hmm. are talking about soda, which means they're going to try their product. And I think we miss that a lot in the world of people decide silo and get so, um, protective of their piece of the pie. And they don't want, I don't want to lose a donor. I want to do this. And, And I think that that's so counterintuitive to actually winning. Um, I think you embrace competition, you build competition, you make your competitors, your friends, not your enemies. Um, And and especially in the world of philanthropy um, and and nonprofit is like, if if you're a mission-driven organization, then nothing should get in the way of your mission. Certainly not another organization. Uh, If they do a better job at something, then embrace it. And I, I think we lose that a lot
0: hundred percent. So just to wrap up here, I was wondering if you would be able to, you shared the story of uh, one young man, the winning ice cream. That's like, you should do an illustrated children's book of that, the winning ice cream. It's the mango. I brought all sorts of fruits and they made this and he won first place. Like, that's a beautiful story. I was wondering if you could share maybe uh, just one other instance, perhaps, of uh, a young person in your program who changed your way of thinking about something.
1: Yeah. Um, that's a, um, that feels like a loaded question. It's like saying, which one is my favorite, which one of my kids is my
0: favorite. Which one comes to mind Do you <laughs> think has a lesson to teach all of us, Chad? <laughs>
1: um, yeah.
0: Um, well, I'll tell you what, um, there is a, um, young man who
1: was one of the very first young men to ever complete our program. Um, and, uh, he, he came to us because he stabbed somebody. Um, and when you begin to dig down into the root of his story, um, the stabbing was an act of defiance. It was an act of survival, um, because of the circumstance that he came from. Um, and it, and it, he did time and he came out and he came to us. Um, that young man not only completed our program, but six months later, I watched him walk across stage as the first ever high school graduate of his family. Um, he went on to community college where he graduated with his associate's degree, won an award from NASA and interned with them. Um, he is now finishing up um, his undergrad degree at the University of Texas at Arlington. And he, can, he plans to continue um, his college education um, as he um, plans to build a career working for NASA. And um, when I think about him, I just think about a couple of things. Number one is, um without intervention his 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 path was already set right um but with intervention he's gonna go work for nasa and he may help develop one of the greatest pieces of technology that saves our planet from the next crisis you know like um and and here we had just set that path for him and it's just a kind of a constant reminder that um Everyone in this world has potential, and it's our responsibility across humanity to help everyone achieve their full potential.
0: If you would like to invest in that potential, here's my sales pitch. Um, You can go to cafemomentum.org, and you can give money to the great things that Chad uh, is doing. Chad, uh, thank you for your work, and thanks for joining us on America's Talking.
1: Thank you so much, Austin.